Good to be with you all this morning. My name is Rob, and for those of you that I haven't met, I'd still love to do that. I say that from time to time, and I'd love to put a name with a face, so come find me sometime after service. Just introduce yourself, and I'd love to get to know you. I'll go ahead and talk about this, uh, because, so you don't have to ask when we, we don't shake hands, because I don't know how much handshaking I'm going to be doing today. I fractured my wrist, and I just want to tell you the story, because everybody has a story, you know, and uh, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, athletes injure themselves competing in their sport. Stuntmen injure themselves doing stunts. Preachers injure themselves doing sermon illustrations. This is true. Wednesday morning, I was teaching a, a discipleship class at, down at the Franklin campus, and we were talking about modern-day idols and I had this cardboard box illustration that I'd thought through really well, apparently not as well as I should have. And the idea behind the illustration was that things that you put your trust in besides God, in other words, idols, modern day idols, are not designed to hold your weight. So I had this cardboard box and I put it down in front of me. I was going to crush the box. And I, as I jumped on top of the box and put my full weight on the box and was crushing the box, the box very cleverly moved away from me, and I ended up on my backside. And uh, my wife, who was in the audience, you know, I, I stood up really quickly. I was like, I'm okay. And, you know, she was, I looked over at her. She was laughing at me. <laughs> and uh, I asked her later, I was like, what's up with that? And she goes, well, I, I, I didn't have a great vantage point. I was in the back of the room, but all I saw was you were there, and then you disappeared, and then I saw your feet. <laughs> and I thought, man, now the really funny thing about this illustration was I had just made the point that when we make something an idol, we will mutually destroy one another. Like the, we will destroy the idol and the idol will destroy us. You know, it's just amazing. You can't plan these things. So here I am, <laughs> fractured wrists to show for that and a really cool story. And I will never forget that. Those individuals there won't either. But uh, I, I actually, like this is literally true. That morning I had decided I was going to do a sermon illustration for you all this morning that was going to have me standing on a chair. <laughs> And I canned it. Like Jody was like, there's no way you're doing that illustration right now. And I said, please. And then she said, no. I said, fine. So I'm not, I'm not going to do it today. But we are going to dive in back to the book of James. And we're going to continue where Lloyd left off last week. Now, some of you are just picking up. Some of you are new to fellowship. Maybe this morning's your first time. Or, you know, you're, you're not new to fellowship, but you missed last week. Number one, you got to go listen to last week. A, because... It was a great message. Lloyd did a great job with this first part of James. B, because there was an illustration he gave as we're getting into this text that we want all of you to have. We want all of you to know. And some of you missed it last week, and we don't want you to miss it. So here's what I want you to do. I've got a coin in my pocket. If you are here last week, you know exactly what this is. If you weren't here last week, we want you to get one of these coins before you leave today. They're going to be out kind of right at those doors. They're going to be in baskets out there. You can grab one. This is a dollar coin like it literally is real currency okay so just one just grab one but we want you to have one of these we want you to hold on to it we're going to keep referring to it throughout the series and we're going to we're going to use it at the end so we want you to have a coin every person grab a coin now the point of this illustration is that as we go through James you're going to hear a lot about faith you're going to hear a lot about works and sometimes people trip up over this book because they're like, well, is James saying that it's the works that save you or the faith that saves you? What he's saying is faith and works are two sides of a coin. What's cool about these particular coins, you know, we thought we were getting the, um, 
Sacagawea, but they've changed it. So there's Lady Liberty on one side, and it literally says, in God we trust. They still put that on our currency. That's, that's kind of neat. Uh, but this is the faith side. When you see that side of the coin, say, yeah, I believe, in God we trust. Now the back side, this is interesting, that the series that we got are American Innovators, and it's got gears up at the top. Isn't that kind of interesting? It reminds us this is, this is the work. This is the work. So you got faith, you got works, two sides of a coin. They're not designed to be separated. And if you can keep that idea with you, it's going to help you as you go throughout the book of James. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the coin at the end of the message. The book of James is intense. It's practical. It will challenge every one of us every week. It's a hard book in a way. Not always hard to understand, but kind of hard, like hard hitting, hard punching. It's going to go after us in some areas that we need, quite frankly, to be gone after in. Why this book now in our church's history? Really briefly, I want to explain that by pointing you to this handout you got. It was with your program when you came in. Pull, pull this out, if you will, for a minute. If you were here with us in the fall, we went through a whole series on our new values, mission, vision, strategy. Uh, you got one of these. Now, we've changed a couple of the words, not, not the foundational words, but some of the way we explain it. And so this is a revised, latest and greatest version. We wanted you all to have this, but let me connect it to the book of James. So on the front of this, these are our five core values. I'm not going to go back through all of it, but we are word-centered, spirit-dependent, better together, courageously real, not about ourselves. That's who we are as a church. If you're checking this church out, or you're getting to know us a little bit, that's the culture. That's what you're going to find here. Open up to the middle. What are we called to do? What's our mission? Well, every church, their mission is to glorify God and make disciples. Our unique thumbprint at Fellowship Bible Church in Middle Tennessee is we're going to do that by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. Why wholehearted life? Because everybody's searching for life. They just don't know where to find it. And Jesus is the only place where you're going to find life that's true life, life that's whole, life that's complete. You see this illustration at the bottom. This is the human heart fractured. This is how we come into this world. This is how we experience life. Look on that next page. What does wholehearted life in Jesus look like? Four characteristics of a life being put back together with Jesus at the center. A renewed mind, a satisfied soul, healthy relationships, and this last one, active faith, is what James is all about. So we've decided to name the sermon series Active Faith, wholehearted life in the book of James. These four characteristics are what we desire for you because God desires these four things for you. And we're going to do a deep dive over these next 16 weeks in the book of James talking about what it means to live out our faith, to embody our faith. Just real briefly, you've seen this illustration on the back. If you're not new to fellowship, you've seen this. The reason it's stick figures is because we want to make it easily remembered and you can write it on the back of a napkin. You know, and so as you look at these, there are four things that we want to encourage and challenge you in. Your church, which is Sundays and Wednesdays, if you're a student, we want you to worship and serve. Your walk, which is 365, 24-7, your walk with God, we want to equip you, encourage you on that. Your group, Will talked about that earlier, how important it is to be in a group because you're going to be learning and growing and living in community. And then your world is your influence as you live out your faith. So you're going to find James talking to all four of these. I want to encourage you, as, as Will did, if you're not in a group, 
get in one because we're going to be talking about James in these groups. We're going to be applying the messages in our groups this semester, and it's not too late. You can come to the group event tonight if you're a young adult or the one that I believe is next week uh, coming up uh, if you're not a young adult. Now, let's dive into the text itself because there's a lot here that I don't want to miss. It's four verses only, two parts. Verse 5 is a big idea. Verse 6 to 8 is a big idea. The first part, verse 5, is kind of straightforward, wonderful, reassuring. The second part, 6 to 8, is honestly hard, difficult. It's a little confusing. All right? We're going to find life in both of them this morning because this is the living Word of God for us today. And by the way, whenever we say that, and I'm going to start a campaign here that, that I, I want to teach us to respond to that phrase, amen. This is the living word of God for us today. And we're going to say amen together as a body. A- amen is a Hebrew word. It means let it be. Like let it be. Like it is so. Yes. Firm foundation. That's what this is. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Now let's get into the text. I want to just backtrack for a moment and reread one to four to give us a running start into five because they connect. So verse one, James chapter one, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we need to be reminded the context here are followers of Jesus who are facing trials of various kinds. What kinds of trials? Various. Money trials? Yes. Health trials? Yes. Persecution? Yes. Relationships? Yes. A lot of the same kinds of trials you and I are enduring. I loved how Lloyd had you all call out last week, for those of you that were here, what trials are you experiencing? Just wrote them on the whiteboard. And as, as I watched that, I was like, I'm in that one, I'm in that one, I'm in that one. We have this in common. So this book was written for us, followers of Jesus, facing various kinds of trials. Now, verse 4, I just want to say this because this is going to launch us into the next verse. Verse 4 might be um, the goal of the book of James. The goal of the book of James, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lloyd mentioned this, but the word perfect doesn't mean morally perfect in this context. It means whole. Like who doesn't want wholeness? Who doesn't want the fractured parts of your life stitched back together? Who doesn't want a divided heart becoming a wholehearted life in Jesus? That's what James is going after here Wholehearted life is what you most want in life. It is, and it's what will most glorify God. Those two things go together. Now, let's move into verse 5 because James is about to tell us what to do if you don't know how to find wholeness, if you don't know how to find completeness, particularly in your trials. Here's what he says, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
Wisdom is a major theme in the book of James, and it's introduced you know, right here in, in message number two. Uh, Lloyd mentioned this. Some refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. You think about Proverbs, it's a collection of wisdom, you know, various different sayings to help you grow in wisdom. James is, is very similar. We have to understand what wisdom is about to understand the book of James. So let me spend a couple of minutes on this. Um, most of us have the wrong idea about wisdom. We have a, a kind of a non-biblical idea about wisdom. Uh, we think of wisdom usually as an impressive accumulation of knowledge. You know, we picture maybe some like um, crusty professor out there that just, he just knows a whole lot. That, that's not what wisdom is. Or, or sometimes we think of wisdom as just kind of like street smarts. You know, it's like knowledge applied. And that's a little closer, but that's not the fullness of the biblical definition of wisdom. Uh, James's context would have been the Hebrew Old Testament, which has a lot to say about wisdom. He was very familiar with the wisdom literature, including Proverbs and other books of the Old Testament that would be a part of that wisdom literature. Here's how to understand wisdom, scripturally, biblically. Wisdom is the art of living life the way God intended. Wisdom is the art of living life the way God intended, which, by the way, is always the best way of all. Okay, now there's a lot of different ways you can live life. There's a lot of things you can go after. There's a lot of ways that you can try to find fullness of life, a lot of things you can search for it in. But you were designed by a designer. You were created by a creator. You were engineered by an engineer. See, God has an intention for mankind. God has a plan for mankind. He puts you together in a certain way and he created life in a certain way. So wisdom is living life the way God designed it to be lived, which by the way is going to lead to two things, your joy and God's glory. Living life the way God designed it to be lived is... Some people think of this book and, and the common perception is it, it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts that I have to follow in, in order to be rewarded at the end of life for my misery. Okay? That's not what this is. This is words of life designed to teach us how do we live according to the way God designed us to live because it's there you're going to find flourishing. It's there you're going to find fullness of life. It's there you're going to find what you really want. And you're going to be glorifying God. Because you're living out his design for you, you see. Your joy, God's glory, go hand in hand. The art of living life the way God intended you to live life, that's the path of wisdom. That's the path of wisdom. Now, you want wisdom. You do. You do. I do. Because we all want life. We all want life. And so once you understand what it is you're seeking after, I, I, honestly, you know, I go to substances, I go to relationships, I go to entertainment, I go to passivity, I go to aggression, I go to anger, I go to all these things because I think they have something for me that I desperately want. I think they have a little more life for me. Once you realize what you really want is fullness of life, and once you understand that the idea behind wisdom is that God would direct you toward actually finding it in a way that would lead to your joy and his glory, you're going to start asking for wisdom because you're going to see that you lack it. So James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, hello, do any of us lack wisdom? <laughs> Me, you, everybody, nobody's nailing this. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who else are you going to ask? 
except your creator, like the, the, the one who designed you, it knows how you work, knows how life works. James goes on, and this is the remarkable part about this verse. He says, God gives every time generously, without reproach. By the way, you could translate without reproach, without finding fault. He gives generously without finding fault. Oh my goodness. Why does he give generously? Because he wants you to find life in the way that he has life for you. Because it's for your joy and his glory. I love the way Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, he paraphrases the whole Bible through this book. By the way, if you don't have a copy of that or, you know, on your phone or something, it's a great way to kind of add some color and help understanding the scripture as you read. Here's how he paraphrases James 1.5. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. I love that. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves to help. You'll get his help and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. Ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. Okay, that's the idea behind James 1.5. Now, when you look at it in the Greek, okay, and I'm not going to get like super technical, but you know the Bible was written in Hebrew mostly in the Old Testament, Greek mostly in the New Testament. So when you go to seminary, you study these languages so you can kind of understand a little more fully the, the words that you're reading. And there's a little nuance in the Greek that I love, okay? It, it, you could literally translate this phrase from the Greek, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God. The word giving there is actually used as an adjective to describe the God who gives. So let him ask the giving God. And what came to my mind this week as I thought about this is we worship a giving God, not a taking God. Ask the giving God. He is the giving God. N.T. Wright says this about this idea. God gives generously and ungrudgingly to all people. How easy it is for us to imagine that God is stingy and mean. We project onto the maker of all things the fearful, petty, or even spiteful character we meet so often in real life. Sometimes even when we look in the mirror. <laughs> Learning who God really is and what he's truly like and reminding ourselves of it regularly is the key to all. Let me just say that again. Learning who God really is and what he's truly like, and reminding ourselves of it regularly is the key to all. That's what happens when you start understanding the gospel, that God so loved you that he sent his son and traded your sin for the son's righteousness so that you can be in full relationship without shame, without guilt, speaking to the giving God and expecting to receive from him because you're confident in his love for you. John Blanchard said it this way, it's characteristic of the unbeliever to see God with a clenched fist. It's characteristic of the believer to see him with an open hand. How do you see God? All right, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? So the big idea of part one, we've just covered part one, which is just a single verse, James 1 verse 5. Here's the big idea. If you need help living life, ask the giving God. Ask the giving God because he's the one who designed you and he's the one that most desires life for you. If you need help living life, ask him. 
Like, seek help from him, not somewhere else. Go to him regularly. Go to him frequently. i got to be careful with my arm here. Go to him constantly. Cry out to him in your trials. Cry out to him in your temptations, your decisions, throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your month, throughout your year. You cannot wear out his generosity. That's what James is saying. Throw open the doors of the doors of the throne room. I need wisdom for this. I need wisdom for that. I don't know what I'm doing out there. He will light up the path of wisdom because this is a request that he loves to answer. According to James 1.5, you can claim this verse. That's this verse. Now, we get into the hard part of our text this morning. Look at verses 6 to 8. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, anybody just kind of like have the air let out of your balloon a little bit on that verse? Like, oh. And I thought this was for me. And then I read the next verses. Oh, man, this is not for me because I have some doubts. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand a lot. I bet all of us feel some degree of that. Didn't, Didn't James just say God gives generously without reproach? God gives generously without finding fault. This sounds like a big catch. It's like you can have wisdom anytime you want it as long as you've got perfect faith. Hello. Listen, nobody in this room has perfect faith. Nobody in the churches that James was writing to had perfect faith. James himself did not have perfect faith. All right? So so there's got to be a little more going on here, okay? And in fact, there is. There is. There's more to these verses than meets the eye. And to some degree, when you hear James talking about doubting, he's not thinking about the kind of doubting that you're thinking about. Like, he's not. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But first, let me say this about the kind of doubting that you are thinking about, the kind of doubting that I'm thinking about. Listen, faith is hard. Life is hard. God's invisible to us physically. Jesus isn't here for us to touch, for us to see his scars. Sometimes it's hard to believe in things like resurrection. And we read our Bibles and sometimes we're like, man, is that right? Is that true? Let me talk about those kinds of doubts. One of my desires for us as a church is that we create the space where we can hold the tension of our faith that's still in progress. Our faith that's not yet whole. Our faith that's not yet complete. You know what that means? It means I want us to be a space and a place where we can be honest about our doubts. That we can be honest about our insecurities in our faith. That's part of what it means to live out our value of being courageously real. That's part of it. Here's how you might think about it. Struggling with doubt at times, struggling with insecurity in your faith at times is part of what it means to be a finite human being trusting in an infinite, infinite God. We don't get it all. We don't understand it all. God hasn't revealed it all. And much of what he's revealed, it it doesn't just come logically for us because we still have depravity that's being rooted out by the Spirit through the word of God. Now, I personally have this conviction. Some of you may agree with this. Some of you may resonate with it. Some of you may not. I personally believe that virtually all thinking, self-reflective people will from time to time have places of insecurity and doubt in their faith. 
I, I have, I do. That's part of what it feels like to be a work in progress. Not yet whole, not yet complete. I believe the Bible even gives space for that. Remember that guy in the Gospel of Mark? We studied this in Mark chapter 9. You know, he's got this demon-possessed son. He asked Jesus to cast out the, the, the demon. And, and Jesus is like, all right, well, you know, what do you think, basically? I'm paraphrasing a lot. And the, the guy says, yeah, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know? Will that kind of faith activate the work of God in this man's family? Absolutely it will. You know, what, what happens right after that? Jesus doesn't rebuke the guy for saying, I believe, help my unbelief. He heals his son. He heals his son. There's space for mustard seed size faith. There's space for incomplete faith. Jesus says all it takes is faith the size of mustard seed. That's all it takes. So the fact that that man could say, I believe, help my unbelief. He was even in that tension expressing faith. Not yet complete. You see that? Like some of you, you just need to get that phrase tattooed on your arm or something, right? Because that's just like your life. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a great prayer, by the way. I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, now let's get back to James. And I wanted to go there to kind of help some of you all that wrestle with doubt on a regular basis. And, and that's a lot of us, okay? But let's get back to God's word in James. What is James talking about? In verse 6, when he says, ask in faith without any doubting. And then later in verse 8, where he, he says, you can't expect to receive anything from God if you're doubting. What? What? Hello, Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. That guy got something. Okay, what's going on here? How do we reconcile these things? Well, when James is talking about doubt in this context, he's using the word a little bit differently than you and I do. Okay, um, to, to quote uh, one of my favorite theologians, Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, okay? Now, let's talk about the word translated doubt, or it actually says in the text, without doubting. The Greek word is diakrino, okay? Diakrino, and I want to tell you what that means. Literally, it means to differentiate, to divide, or to separate into parts, okay? So Jody and I went out on Friday night, Went to and got a nice steak, and I diacrinoed that steak. Like, I cut it up into parts, and I swallowed it. It was delicious, all right? That's what this word means. Now, James himself actually uses this word again down in chapter 2, verse 4, to talk about the divisions of the church that's caused by wealth comparison. The church can get diacrinoed. It can get divided. What's interesting, some of you are like, well, how do you get doubt from that? What's interesting about chapter 1, verse 6, when it says, without diacrino, he's using the verb diacrino in the middle voice. You know, most of you are like, I don't get it. What does that mean? I can't remember ninth grade, um, uh, whatever, uh, grammar. That's the word I was looking for. I had to go back and remind myself what the middle voice is, okay? The middle voice is what, when the subject of the verb is both doing the action and receiving the action. So a good example is I would say, I injured myself doing a sermon illustration. 
Okay? I'm doing the action of the injury. I'm receiving the action of the injury. That's the middle voice. Right? I injured myself. So this division is talking about an internal division inside the person. I'm divided in of myself. Now you start to see where English translators grab onto this word. It's like, okay, that sounds like doubt. Divided in oneself. Okay, now you start to see that connection. James, however, is talking about not just someone who's like, man, I'm in on Jesus, but occasionally it's hard to believe this. He's not just talking about that person. He's talking about someone who cannot make up his mind which way he wants to go. Is he in? Is he out? Jesus, the son of God, sometimes, I don't know, maybe he is, maybe he's not. I'm divided. You see, that's the kind of person. And and so he's saying, how can you expect to receive anything from God if you haven't actually made a claim of faith? Either way. Listen to the way Douglas Moo writes this. Uh, Douglas Moo, a New Testament scholar, my personal favorite commentary of the book of James, he wrote. And, and this is the big idea behind this word. And I think this will clear it up. The word suggests then not so much intellectual doubt as a basic conflict in loyalties. A conflict in loyalties. So what James probably had in mind was what Jesus said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You, you know, you love the one and hate the other, or you're devoted to the one and you despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. Now that was in the context of you can't serve both God and wealth, right? But this can be applied in all kinds of ways. You can't serve two masters. Um, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, there's this little minor character that's just mentioned by name only, and I, I just love the name. His name is Mr. Facing Both Ways. Hyphenated. <laughs> That's the idea. That's the idea. J- James is saying, when you ask, you can't be a mister facing both ways. Like, do you believe God is the source of life that you're going to to ask for life, to ask for wisdom, or not? To get an even better idea of what James is thinking of, let's look again at verse 7 and 8. Like, this, this is really going to hammer this home, and I think you're going to see it really clearly. For that man, talking about this doubting man or this divided man, the one that's divided internally, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Here's the kicker, verse 8. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay. Double-minded, in in the Greek, the word's not mind, the word is soul. It's die, the the prefix die, which means two. You know, some of you are familiar with that, like two, D-I, two. Psychos, psychos, soul, two souls, two souls. James is the first to ever use this word. It's not found anywhere else in Greek literature up until this point, biblical or non-extra biblical. It's just not there. Scholars believe James made this word up because he wanted a a word for this two-souled person. Double-minded is not bad, but it's really double-souled. We might say divided heart. The inner person, the core of who you are, you're neither here nor there. You're Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mrs. Facing Both Ways. Here's what Simon Kistemacher, another scholar and commentator, says about this that's helpful. What then is James saying? He's not referring to the person who wards off doubt, but rather to the one who is double-minded and unstable. The double-minded man actually has two personalities or two souls. Listen to this. One side says he'll try religion. If it does no harm, it might do some good. The other side says, 
I have no need of God because I want to be independent and self-sufficient. That sound like anybody you know? So we didn't get off the hook, right? right? It's, not, it's not just like mere intellectual doubt, you know, that you have occasionally and sometimes you wrestle with. But it's this part of you that wants to have it both ways. It's this part of you that says, I'm in on Jesus, but I really want to have control of my own heart, my own direction, my own dreams. How are you going to ask God to give you life if you can't make up your mind where life is found? You're asking for God for life over here and you're trying to find life over here with your addiction or with your relationship or with your idol, whatever it is. Two souls. Divided heart. Now, in verse 6, James is, is kind of saying you're either committed to the idea that Jesus is the ultimate source of life or, or you're not. You have to choose. You, have to, you cannot have it both ways. Now put this in the context of James' audience. They were under trial. They were under persecution. Arrest was imminent. For some of them, death was imminent by proclaiming the word of God. They didn't have space to have it both ways. Think about our culture, right? We've got both ways Christians all around us. Right? Most people in our culture, they come to church on Sundays. Oh, yes, they do. And they don't really think about Jesus very much Monday to Saturday. It is so easy for that to be us. Okay, and don't hear like a bunch of guilt I'm slapping you on. Hear, hear this, you're missing out on fullness of life. You're putting your hope in the wrong stuff. James gives a vivid image in the back half of verse 6 of the personal cost of that kind of divided loyalty, of neither being really in on Christ, neither being really out on Christ, okay? James is going to give this vivid image. Look at verse 6. For the one who doubts, remember that means the divided person, two souls, is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, there's no anchor for the soul. So when the storms of life come, which again is the context of this, trials of various kinds, when the storms of life come, if you have no anchor for your soul, you get tossed about, you get blown about, you get blown off course. You can't get to where you need to go. You might get dashed against the rocks. You might find yourself shipwrecked because there's no anchor for your soul. James is saying you don't have to live that way. Faith in Jesus is an anchor. It's an anchor, but you got to put down anchor. You got to drop the anchor of your faith in the deep water that you're living in. All throughout the book of James, this is what he's going to call us to, active faith. Take your faith and drop it down. Anchor yourself to the solid foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. Do that because the trials of life are coming if they're not already here. Be all in on your faith. He's saying this over and over and over again. Test it out. Try it out. Drop anchor and see what happens. When you drop your anchor in faith, all in on Jesus, all in on following him, not just Sunday, Sunday, Monday to Saturday, the waves and the wind will still blow. 
The storm doesn't magically go away when you put the anchor down. There's no promise of that. But think about the difference between the ship that's anchored and the ship that's not. The ship that's anchored isn't going anywhere. And on the day when the waves and the wind subside, you will be right where you want to be. Listen once more to verse 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now think about waves and wind moving against an anchored ship. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and whole, complete, lacking in nothing. That's right where you want to be. Okay, but you've got to drop anchor. You've got to have an active faith. Not a mind-only faith or a Sunday-only faith or a God, you can have these parts of me, but not those parts of me. That's not following Jesus, men and women. And I say this in love for you. It's not fullness of life. Men and women in this room living duplicitous lives. You know, I'm not trying to guilt us here. There's, There's a part of all of us that's divided, right? Because we're in process. But we've got to make a decision. We've got to say, am I in or am I out? we got to drop anchor on this. That's active faith. That's active faith. Now, I want to just give us a few minutes at the end of this message, which I know it was, was wonderful and then hard. <laughs> wonderful. Ask for wisdom. Drop the anchor of your faith. Ask for wisdom. Put all your eggs over here in the Jesus basket and ask for wisdom for life. I want to give you a chance to actually pray about this. And you're going to do that in your own way. You know, we're going to have just two or three minutes where the, the band will be up here just playing some instrumental stuff. And uh, you can just, right where you are, just bow your head and pray. If, if, if you're a prayer journaler like I am, you know, pull out your phone or pull out a, maybe the, the sermon notes um, book and just write to God. And I want to encourage you to talk about one of two things or both. Uh, the first is about this idea of, are, are, are you in on Jesus? You know, like, you, you want to be. This is a great reminder from the Holy Spirit this morning. There are areas of your life that you're holding back. It's just time to drop anchor, believing that he's the source of life, not anything else. He's the source of life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Here's a chance to talk to God about that. Maybe you're not yet there yet. and You're like, I don't really know what I believe. Just talk to God about that. Would, would you have enough faith just to talk to God about that? Not even asking for any commitments today from some of you. You're not ready to make any kind of commitment. Just talk to God about it in the privacy and space of your own prayer life. And, and secondly, some of you, like, you're like, all right, I'm all in on Jesus. I needed this reminder, but I'm all in on Jesus. But you've got some stuff in your life that you need to ask for wisdom. This is going to be an opportunity for you to literally live out James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, that's you this morning in some area of your life. I know it. Let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach. If you can say, I'm all in on Jesus, then ask the giving God and expect that he's going to give. Spend a couple of minutes talking about that, praying about that, asking and be specific, guys. We got to apply this word to our, the word to our specific parts of our lives. Be specific in your prayers. And let's just have a few minutes of prayer. And then Luke and the team is going to lead us in a closing song. Let me start the prayer. Father, we pray because we believe 
Uh, why would we pray if we don't believe and allow our belief to be like an anchor, not, not just some throwing some words up in the clouds, um, wondering if they're going to be heard or not, but allow us to literally talk to you, knowing that you're literally there, that you're hearing us, that you're engaging us. God, my heart is for men and women in the room that are struggling with doubt. They're just not sure if you're there or not. Would you give them space in these few moments to be honest about that? My heart is for men and women in this room that have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ either way. They can't make up their minds. They're kind of going through the motions of being a part of a church, but they're not all in. They're not all out. Father, I hope they don't feel rebuked this morning. I hope they don't leave this church this morning. I pray that they would keep coming back to see maybe there really is life in this word. Maybe there really is life in this Jesus. And would you grant them the faith to believe? And for all of us, God, wherever we stand, we need wisdom to live the way that you've designed us to live. May we pray specifically, and will you answer us specifically? I believe you will. In Jesus' name.